session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. Uh, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Make Your Art No Matter What by Beth Pickens. Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles by Beth Pickens. Uh, saw this book, as often happens, drawn by the cover. Also been exploring some more um, creative outlets myself. I might share about it at some point, whether it's on today's show or another show. Uh, it started an improv class just last week, which actually I highly recommend uh, for anyone to do, not even if you have any interest in comedy or improv or anything like that, but just as a life experience. So I uh, saw this book and decided to check it out. Looking forward to reading Make Your Art No Matter What by Beth Bickens and sharing it with you next week. All right, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds, and the Stories that Make Us. And both the title and subtitle have quite some significance, which I'll get into. Um, the book was very, very powerful, but also, eh, I guess maybe not also because of that, it was very intense. And, uh, you know, a few times I was close to tears reading uh, stories that she shared throughout this book and the way she presents them. And there is this almost now cliche way that anytime someone presents case studies of individuals dealing with mental illness in a very compassionate way, they will say it's uh, reminiscent of Oliver Sacks. So Oliver Sacks was a psychiatrist himself, uh, but he wrote many different books and gave many accounts of patients, but did so with so much compassion and with ensuring that their humanity was uh, withheld or kept, I should say, throughout the description. So rather than talking about people as a, a collection of symptoms or coming off quote-unquote crazy or mad, he was very compassionate in the way that he described the person as a whole being. And you definitely felt that in this book as well. Um, uh, I'll get into what the book or how the outlook the outlook of the book is or how it's uh, divided. There's essentially um, six stories that are each one chapter. And in each chapter, we're looking at someone's experience with mental illness. And interestingly enough, she starts the first chapter. It's called Rachel, or it's the prologue. And that's the author, Rachel Aviv. And she shares her own experience um, heartbreaking that at six years of age she was hospitalized for what appeared to be um, an experience of anorexia and we, we see this young girl she's talking about her own account and how she wasn't even you know aware of what was going on or what was happening or to really 
know what she was doing or why she was there and how she was trying to piece it all together. Um, but there she was, and it's at that time, and it possibly might still be, the youngest diagnosis of anorexia that was ever given, at least in the United States. So uh, I thought that was really meaningful as the author um, sets the tone for the book that we're going to be talking about mental illness and uh, mental health struggles, but even what is mental illness and is it that also how we define mental illness uh, won't just define the the illness or what how someone is suffering, but could start to define them or that they might start to um, respond or act differently because of a, a diagnosis. So that's why that subtitle, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us, the stories that make us if a psychiatrist tells you that you have this disorder and here are the symptoms, it can affect how you then act going forward. Uh, So here she was, uh, Rachel shares her experience in the hospital, of course, being the youngest one, but then also seeing these kind of like big sister figures, one of which is Hava, who is the epilogue. She is introduced in this prologue, but then there's essentially a chapter for her at the end. Um, But how seeing them and how they acted also in a way taught her possibly how to act or how to be or what she was dealing with. And so her own experience was there of this co-creation of her experience based on what she was going through. Um, But then also how uh, she was being labeled and how that affected her. Because, you know, we talk often about labels being not just good or bad, but they're complex. Because sometimes when someone receives a label or diagnosis, it could be very um, comforting on one hand. Okay, what I'm going through, it's not just me, so much so that there's a name for it. And other people go through it and doctors might understand it. And with that could hopefully mean some sense of uh, a good prognosis or treatment or something can be done about this. It can also be a bit Uh, takes a little bit of the responsibility that could be good or bad away from it's not okay something that's just me there's this real thing this disorder or illness that I'm dealing with but of course people can also feel judged or stigmatized by a label too or that they become defined by it and this is why we've seen movements away from saying an autistic individual to saying someone with autism or a schizophrenic and saying someone who suffers from schizophrenia or someone who has schizophrenia to make it so that their diagnosis is not all that they are, that they are more than that. That is just one part of who they are. Um, But so we see throughout the book this uh, experience that different people have, these stories she shares that are in some ways very different, but then have these similar themes of how their experience dealing with different type of mental health struggles or issues or just life challenges, um, how they experience those, but then how dealing with the different mental health systems that they were in, uh, one individual, Bapu, was in India, um, how dealing with those systems also impacted and affected what they experienced. And even uh, Rachel Aviva, the author, has uh, some questions or wonders, what about this space in between from when a person is suffering and then is told the story of who they are and how that starts to create who they are a bit. What about those those times, those experiences in between? I wonder what that interplay is like. And so I think there was, uh, as I often experience when authors are sharing about um, a topic, 
the more vulnerable they are and include themselves in it, which can feel like a risk and might not be comfortable, uh, it does tend to usually add to the book. And that was definitely the case here where Rachel Aviv, including her own experience, and then she comes back to it later in the book, um, really was impactful and set the tone for the book. It was just made it very much real. Also made for me connecting with her as the author and the person who's going to share these stories uh, gave a different insight and experience than even I think if she had put the chapter in the end. And of course, if she hadn't put there at all, uh, put it in there at all. So I really appreciated that. Um, the first chapter of the book after the prologue, which is about the author herself, is about Ray. And this was a case I actually was not familiar with, but I'm glad I became familiar with it um, by reading the book. And so it's about uh, Ray or Raphael Osheroff and his experience um, being someone who became front and center of a lawsuit that was in the middle of two types of schools of thought when it comes to psychology or psychiatry, uh, the psychodynamic type of school of thought, and then the psychiatric or the the biopsychological, if you want to call it, or the medication side of things. So uh, from the psychodynamic school, the, the idea is that anything that someone is going through can be explained through these underlying types of uh, unresolved issues or things that they're experiencing. So if someone has anorexia, it's not anything biological or biochemical going on. They're trying to, let's say, maintain control or take back control or be defiant or get back at their parents or a whole variety of other interpretations that might be given. But the interpretation of whatever someone is experiencing comes from these types of underlying psychological psychodynamic factors or if someone is depressed it's going to be about some unexpressed feeling or some internalized anger or whatever the interpretation is but we're looking at it from this psychodynamic standpoint on the other side we have this school of thought which is about we could put it the the chemical imbalance type of understanding which is that all mental illnesses the root cause is some type of a chemical imbalance or that the individual um, is deficient in some neurotransmitter or something is off in their brain chemistry, and that's why we're seeing the dysfunction. So if someone is depressed, it's nothing about unexpressed feelings or desires or an internalized anger. It's that they ha don't have enough serotonin or norepinephrine or some uh, neurotransmitters out of balance. And so um, Ray was being treated at an institution that was very psychodynamic in its approach um, at the Chestnut Lodge. And uh, after many years of receiving different types of treatment, uh, he was there for many years. He went to another uh, other institutions while he was struggling with his mental illness. Uh, he then used medications, and that was at, at times more beneficial, but eventually he filed a lawsuit that he was not receiving adequate, adequate care and so basically became um, this showdown between these two schools of thought of, of what it means to treat someone or what is the cause of our mental illnesses. And the truth is, we don't exactly know. So um, it isn't clear. And of course, most of the time, it's going to be more than one thing. But it doesn't seem that it's just psychodynamic type of things going on that people have unresolved issues and that's the only reason we see any type of mental illness from depression to schizophrenia and anything else um, 
But also we know that the biological model, which people thought was very promising and were very excited about, definitely has not panned out the way we would hope. And not even just the chemical imbalance, which uh, it's, it's sad how ideas like this can stick. You see it often things like the reptilian brain or the three types of brains that we have, which is not true and not supported by what neuroscientists and people who study the brain would say. Um, but this is another one of those, the chemical imbalance. I still hear it where people say, I think this person has a chemical imbalance, or I think I have a chemical imbalance. And it's used as a way to uh, explain the cause of mental illness. Uh, I think someone said, there, there's some phrase like zombie ideas, these ideas that have been killed, effectively killed by science and the research, but they still survive. They still walk around like zombies. Uh, and really it's just because it's so much in our public discourse in the ether, so to speak, that we uh, use these phrases because it sounds true. It takes a long time, I think, for these ideas, even within a scientific community, be rooted out, let alone the general public who's getting things second and third hand or, or far delayed. But we do still see this prominent idea that chemical imbalance is uh, the cause of, let's say, something like depression. Uh, but then they've done research even recently showing that it's not even about the serotonin levels, or might not be. I, I really should present it that way. That serotonin is likely involved in mood. But to think of that as the sole cause of good mood, bad mood, mood disorders would be very, very reductive and missing much of what's going on. Um, you know, we do see such an interplay between the physical and the psychological. And so we know that these things play a part, but to reduce it to one or the other is missing the point. And I've seen some studies that show that, for example, therapists, especially if they're more psychodynamic, I don't know if they included that second part, but I could see that being the case. Uh, they're less likely to think that a biological illness or other issue is the cause or affecting someone's experience. And they're, they're going to likely think it's more psychological. So rather than thinking a depression might be caused by a biological factor, let's say hypothyroidism, they will dismiss those things far more readily because they assume it's the psychodynamic causes that are really having the effect. So when an individual then hears these um, types of explanations from the quote unquote experts, of course, it's going to impact how they see themselves, how they... Um, experience what they're going through, how they continue to feel about themselves and the prognosis and what they expect to see happen. It's inevitable that's going to have an impact. And that's uh, a theme throughout this book is that trying to understand what is this interplay? Because when people are told what their mental illness is, why it's, it is what it is, what caused it, what's wrong with them, of course, that's going to impact how they see themselves, and then that's going to impact how they will even feel going forward. So I want to continue the discussion uh, about this book because I really did find it quite fascinating and, as I said, very powerful. I do highly recommend it. Um, and I want to talk a bit about the stories or at least some themes of the stories that she shares throughout the book. So again, the book I'm discussing is Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us by Rachel Aviv. Um, and as I mentioned through the book, she goes into these in-depth stories, each one about 30, 40 pages, uh, looking at a different individual and their unique experience 
with mental illness and also mental health systems and social systems and structures. And uh, they're all heartbreaking in their own ways. And what's also interesting for me reading these, I wouldn't call them case studies because they're more than that, um, but these stories of these individuals, at times um, I had different experiences relating and connecting to to the individuals. Uh, as a psychologist, I would hope I have a sense of compassion for anyone, especially if they're dealing with a uh, mental health struggle, illness issue. Um, but I did find myself at times connecting in different ways or um, did I have a certain doubt about a certain uh, an individual's experience or see it a different way? And so I always try to uh, think of reading not just as a passive experience, but as a active one where I'm looking at seeing if I agree, disagree, have a different perspective, what else it reminds me of. Um, and so it was interesting to see these these stories that were shared and sometimes feeling like I couldn't connect as much to uh, an individual and then all of a sudden I would feel something um, that would make me connect with them more. And I think that was because of the way the stories were shared and um, the way Rachel Aviv wrote the book, you get so many different insights, especially from the individual and individuals themselves. Often she shares excerpts from the diaries or journals or memoirs of the people she's describing, which can at time give us some unique insight to what their experience was like in a way that, of course, no one else can explain better than themselves. Um, as I mentioned, Ray, that was the case of an individual whose legal battle then was significant uh, in the, the field of psychology, one that I did not know specifically about, but was happy to learn about. Uh, we learned about Bapu, who was in India, and her experience, which includes a lot of religious, spiritual types of experiences, at times thinking um, that she can communicate with gods or she herself has healing powers. And here we get introduced to this notion of how much culture plays a part of uh, mental health, how mental distress might be expressed, but also what we even consider healthy and unhealthy, or even uh, not just unhealthy, but psychotic or something that is um, delusional or uh, it would require medication, whereas maybe it's a cultural type of experience. And so here we can see that if we look at um, mental health, or to look at mental health, it's impossible to completely tear it away from culture or society or structures. One of the more meaningful books I read during graduate school, I believe the author was Cushman, um, but it was looking at the history of different psychological theories. And so we have this idea at times, or at least I definitely did then, and sometimes we'll still hold that, that when someone is sharing something, we think they're a great mind and they have some insights, that it is somehow just about an essential truth and that that individual is not going to be affected by um, the historical culture and context of their experience and whenever they are born and alive, and then also their individual family history and life experiences. But of course they are. They're always um, going to be affected by those things, as we all are, that all shape the lens that we use to view the world and understand the world. And... Sometimes having those different experiences actually can help us see different things, which can be good, but we do have to acknowledge each of us individually, 
um, when we're looking at other individuals and also collectively, that there's no such thing as an unbiased lens or a lens that does not have a particular shape or that is just looking at uh, the world or things objectively. And so that book was eye-opening for me to see if, um, looking at different key figures in psychology, psychiatry, and the different theories they had on human beings and the human experience and how much we could understand it even better when we recognize their own personal experiences and also the historical context that they were uh, living in. So uh, kind of to simplify it, someone like Freud, so much might have been made to um, be discussed about sex, and sometimes people will talk about that. Well, when we look at people's hidden uh, desires or thoughts, of course, even in general, it could include sex, but if it's sex is being re repressed in a Victorian era where you should not even think about, discuss, or have these types of thoughts or want to talk about them, well, then, of course, it's going to be even more of these things will come up when we go into someone's unconscious. And this is why, actually, I think the unconscious needs some significant rebranding because it's seen as this dark thing that only has these, uh, you know, repressed angers and unresolved issues and sexual desires and things that are all dark and, uh, you know, animal-like and negative when it's not that at all. It could include a lot of those things, but also includes so many other feelings and thoughts and knowledge and things that we are not aware of or conscious of at any given moment. Uh, the analogy I use is that in a library, there's this vast library there. Some of the books might have dark things in them, but there's a whole bunch of very good positive things there as well. And so that's like our unconscious. It's that library. It's not just these negative things. It includes things that we might see as having a negative um, thought or impact, but it's not just those things. So uh, when we look at psychiatry and psychology, even throughout its uh, recent decades, we can see the impact of different cultural factors that impact what we think is healthy or not healthy. I remember um, taking cl a class on grief and then hearing people's perspective on it. And some people would think, well, if someone talks to their dead relatives, this is a sign of psychosis. And some psychologists or psychiatrists would, would have this type of a uh, mindset. And so if they had a patient come to them and they were saying, oh, I spoke with my dead grandma the other night, they would say, okay, this person is clearly psychotic and might even need medication. Whereas if we look at different cultures, and there are many where speaking to the dead is actually uh, encouraged or and seen as something quite beautiful or as a uh, meaningful experience, we can see that it doesn't mean that they are in any way mentally ill. They might be quite healthy in expressing something uh, that makes a lot of sense in the grieving process, that we still have much to say to our now deceased relatives. We might still want to continue that relationship with them, and the grieving process might include all of that, and it might even be once they've passed. Or the, um, the notion to actually verbalize it out loud versus doing it in our head. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm doing it in my head, that makes it more okay than if I say it out loud when it doesn't have to be the case. These are cultural types of um, preferences or values rather than something that I would see as universally meaningful. So uh, Bapu has these spiritual experiences that people label her a certain way. And, and for me, a big indication or way of looking at mental illness, and this is often even when we look at how mental illness is often 
uh, defined is is the individual under distress that's a big thing so if someone is hurting that's very real and we don't want to undermine that um, but if they're not hurting and we think they should be a different way that's always something we want to be mindful of this notion of quote unquote normal and how someone is supposed to be um, that's something that we have to be very mindful of is going to be affected by so many cultural assumptions and factors and I also think about this I thought about uh, being a therapist and we are very much taught to be non-judgmental to approach our clients with a non-judgmental stance to encourage them to feel comfortable to open up to build that rapport to show them that they are a human being and what their experience is is normal as a human being to, to not make them feel judged and to not um, impose our values on them. And this is definitely, I think, healthy and aspirational, something to keep in mind, but also to do it perfectly would be impossible, which is something I've had to recognize and come to terms with that whether or not you want to accept it or believe it, it's impossible for you not to have a sense of what you think is a healthy human being or a range of what's healthy. So I've thought about this, that as a therapist, you know, your client will share certain things and then you might emphasize or um, talk more about certain things that might catch your eye, which usually means it could be just something you're curious about and want to explore, but often it's something you might be concerned about. So, you know, a client might say, yes, yesterday or this weekend, I did this and that, and then I slept two hours, and then I spoke with my mom for seven hours, as I do every day, and da da da, da and the rest, a bunch of other things they did. Now, more than likely, I try to make them a bit more extreme. The sleeping two hours might catch your attention that that's not a healthy amount of sleep, and speaking with their mother seven hours a day might catch your attention also. And you might say, well, that's something you talk to your mom seven hours a day. Tell me more about that. So it's tough because we want to say we're non-judgmental and don't have these biases, but we do have this sense of what is healthy and what's unhealthy that I think it might also be good at some level. We can't pretend like we don't know so that if our client says they're sleeping five minutes a night, we at least won't have some question about that. We, we won't say for sure. I know that's wrong. You might just, actually at that level, you probably can say that, um, but you want to explore it a bit more to understand what's going on or even uh, for me, it's important that people are aware of a sense of meaning in their life and purpose. And so if they're only living a life that is focused on certain things, they likely will be unhappy. I can't say for sure. And I might not say they have to, obviously I want to say they have to live things or do things a certain way, but you'll, you're aware of that. So um, throughout the stories, you see how much uh, mental health professionals and at the time the profession as a whole coming up with things like diagnoses and what makes someone healthy or unhealthy, um, the different biases that then affect what the person is going through. Uh, for example, the case of, I believe it's Naomi, who um, is a black woman living in Minnesota at the time and going through some very distressing experiences and then eventually even goes to jail. But her experience and how much it's impacted by race and racism and different structures that are imposing a, a type of stress and pain on her. And so if you are living through that and living with that, unfortunately, it could be easy to label the individual as having a problem, but maybe they are expressing a 
cultural, societal, systemic type of problem that is manifesting and being expressed through their pain and what they're going through. And so racism itself can be a big cause of even medical and physical ailments and also uh, mental illness and ailments. And so if we only look at the individual as the problem, we might be missing the bigger picture that there are systemic issues here that are causing um, pain and problems. Uh, and also, of course, it can be for individuals who are part of a marginalized group. Uh, but throughout the book, this theme also comes up of, well, what if society itself is unhealthy? So, for example, people are feeling more disconnected and lonelier than they did before. And we can see how this would be the way we uh, live our lives, um, even pre-COVID, but of course, COVID had a big impact on that. But just in general, the daily life of many individuals is very isolated and also the ways that we um, have our sense of self and our sense of community. It's off, often very lacking having a sense of community, something that does seem to be a very human need. So this experience of loneliness is something that many people have that then if it's manifesting in someone in a certain way, there's always just going to be this complex interplay of environment and individual um, that will express itself in different ways, just like uh, parents can parent two kids the same way, but because of their own proclivities and their own temperaments and different things of that individual child, they'll get different results. And often parents can be baffled. We did this with our older child and now our younger one is reacting so differently. Well, it's that every person is going to react to the same environment differently because every person does have unique attributes and things that make them who they are. Um, so similarly, we might say, well, why do these individuals express the pain and others might not, or at least not express it the same way. Well, it's it's more complex than that because individuals, um, it doesn't mean they are the problem. It could be they are canaries in the coal mine. They're reflecting something that is unhealthy in the system. We also know that uh, black Americans are, um, even by medical students and by doctors, thought to, for example, have thicker skin and feel less pain. This is actually I've been researched and found, and it could be related to especially the negative health outcomes of black women and black women who are uh, giving birth, who are far more likely, I think it's over two times more likely, to die during childbirth. And it's often because there's a sense that their pain is not registered by others as being as real as white pain or other people's pain, which is um, heartbreaking to even say, but of course even more heartbreaking of a reality to imagine that's the experience of people that they're going to a doctor but their pain is being seen as less real and they're being given less attention and then it could lead to of course just more pain and anguish but then even death and so uh, this book is a great exploration of these various themes it's not something where she has this clear conclusion that this is exactly what's happening even there's a whole um, chapter that really the main focus is on medication and being on medication and what that's like. And again, it's not one of these black and white things that medication is bad. It's definitely helped many people. I'm talking about psychiatric medications, antidepressants, for example, definitely helped many people, but many people have very bad experiences on them. About a third of people don't get helped at all, but other people have negative side effects while they're on them. And then also some really bad experiences withdrawing. And she shares some of those stories. And it also then brings up this notion of who am I? Is the depression part of who I am if I'm going through that? Or is that interfering with me expressing who I am? And I think sometimes it can feel more simplified. Let's say if we 
find out someone has a brain tumor that's affected their personality and we remove the brain tumor. And now it seems like they went back to who they were before the brain tumor. Um, but often with mental health, anxiety, depression, these types of things, I think it's a much blurrier line because you might know someone who's an anxious person and now that's part of how you see them. If they lost that anxiety or that severe anxiety or significant anxiety, they might feel like a different person to you. And I, so I think this is a interesting kind of a conversation trying to understand what is even um, what makes us who we are and what is mental illness and mental health issues and how do we tease those things apart. I think sometimes we think of them as so separate, but it's not so separate from who, who we are or even experience of mental illness might impact who we are in both positive and negative ways. You experience a depression and it can allow you to become a more, compa a more compassionate, empathic person, not just it's an illness that has impacted you negatively. doesn't mean you would wish it upon someone, but it is just the complex experience that you have during and after that experience. And maybe that after, it's hard to even say it's ever gone fully. It might be more complex than that. So yeah, great book that really had my me thinking a lot. I really was very moved by the stories and had these intense experiences reading about different people and what they went through and sometimes the tragic things that they experience, but a very humanizing book as well when you you get more in touch with the human experience and the different things that people go through and that we all go through at some level. Not everyone will go through anything the same, but we do see these common themes uh, of what we each experience. So I highly recommend this book, and I'm happy to have read it, Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So tonight was discussing the book Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us by Rachel Aviv. And, you know, the that part, the stories that make us, we might not realize that we have a story that we tell about ourselves and understanding who we are, kind of making sense of who we are. And so, you know, we don't live each moment like we just woke up and it's a fresh experience. And that's actually uh, for the better. It allows for us to function in so many ways. I was mentioning the unconscious and how it definitely needs a rebranding because we see it as this negative thing, but we can understand the unconscious is all these stored experiences that we have had in our lives and how it allows for us to uh, use our brains as a predicting machine rather than sometimes we would think of it as a thinking machine, but it's a predicting machine that would, allows us to enter a situation and without our awareness, we start to already prepare for it or have expectations that allows for us to respond more quickly than if we didn't have any of that. If every time I walked into this building, it felt like a new place, that's not good. But we can imagine, or I can imagine that even as I'm driving here, I start to somehow my brain and body is preparing to do the show and then parking and coming up and, and then walking into the room. It all does things that actually helps me rather than experiencing it and, and approaching it in a purely fresh way. Um, and that also means that we have a way of looking at ourselves or predicting who we are and what we are and also what we're going to do. So we have a narrative about who we are. And sometimes that story is seeing ourselves in a positive light, sometimes a more neutral light, or maybe sometimes a negative one. 
we might look at ourselves and think, oh, I'm so bad or I'm so, um, you know, useless or worthless or unlovable, or we might see ourselves more neutral or we might have a more compassionate, positive um, feeling about ourselves. Actually, in one of the stories in the book, uh, trying to move away from medicine or showing this movement, there was one psychiatrist that wrote a prescription for more uh, for self-compassion, I think it was. And then as far as refills, it said infinite. So it was essentially saying that, uh, you know, this individual would benefit from just having much more self-compassion for themselves and repeatedly giving it to themselves. And, you know, something that, you know, so these stories that we tell can definitely impact how we see ourselves, what we predict we're going to do, how we uh, interact with ourselves, our others, and of course, even ourselves. Um, but as I was talking about who am I, who we are, identity, and how do we tease that apart from things we go through, like things like mental illness? Where does depression end and the person begin? Or is getting rid of the depression um, who become making them become who they are? Or are we losing something in who they are within that? And so she shares, uh, the author, as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, she shares her experience as a six-year-old being hospitalized for what appeared to be something like anorexia. But again, here's where... The, the diagnosis itself has an impact on the individual and their experience. Um, but she later shares her experience taking antidepressants and what that was like and um, the good and the bad of it, how good it would make her feel at times and make her feel like she can function better and interact with people and felt more alive, but also um, this experience of withdrawing and what that went through and also the sense of, well, who am I is the medication bringing out who I am or is it masking something about who I am or taking that away and it's not not so clear you know I, I do wonder I was reading it and thinking about this sense that we all you know we have a sense of a negativity bias and we worry about things because it makes sense in order to survive I have to make sure I avoid all the various things that can harm me or kill me and it does make sense for me to then be focused on or have a slightly more focus on the negative to ensure that I survive rather than just seeing the positive. So I think there's some general um, way that all people have this bias and it makes sense. But what I think, you know, we can look at so many different aspects of, of human beings. One aspect that you can see is how much we have this negativity bias. How weighted is it towards the negative? And even Depression and anxiety in some ways can be expressions of that or one way of looking at that, especially something like anxiety. How much uh, do I worry and feel preoccupied with the worry of those negative things happening, of what can happen negatively? I was talking about the book Breaking Free of Childhood and Adolescent Anxiety and OCD a couple of weeks ago, and the author there, I think it was Eli Lebowitz, was talking about how, you know, children have anxiety they just can imagine more negative things happening and they also think that the negative things happening are more likely so it, it is just this way that unfortunately we can see like anything of a human experience it tends to be on a spectrum some people are just more worried or thinking in that way that they're more concerned about the negative things so uh, in the book she was sharing about her own experience and others where they might be preoccupied with let's say a negative social interaction and how that went, or seeing it as even worse than it was possibly. And so, you know, going back to this notion of who am I, who are we, what makes us us, and what would actually 
take away who we are or would it allow us to express more of who we are? Um, yeah, it does seem like sometimes an antidepressant, for example, turns down the volume on that negative worry part of us a bit. And of course, that sounds good. I can't, you know, it's hard to say that's not good. Of course, it's not that easy, like turning a knob that works that cleanly and also that it doesn't have any other effects. And there's a lot more and not everyone even has any effect to it. But that's that was something that I thought about, that there's this sense that, you know, it gives people some of that. And I don't think it's just through antidepressants. People do it in other ways, meditation, doing exercise, there's other ways that we can give ourselves that experience. But it seemed like hearing her and her friends discuss their or describe their experience being on antidepressants, that came to my, my mind, this sense that there's a way of turning down the volume on some of these um, worries and how maybe that's that's kind of good if we can do that. You know, this might seem like a huge leap or something very different, but I could see that religion also does provide people with some of that. There's a way that it does comfort people. So, of course, here I'm talking about it just from a psychological standpoint. Can't say what's true or not true about it, but just what we see, the experience of people is when you believe, you know, people sometimes share the story that I, I knew God was with me. So I walked into this, whatever it was, and I, you know, they did whatever they wanted to do. And so in a way, it's a sense of just their anxiety was taken away. Sometimes they even have this, I knew that God wanted this. So I was not nervous at all because of it. And so um, how I would see that is all of us would benefit from not being as focused on that negative, for example, taking more risks, trying new things, not being afraid of, of, of you know, rejection or failure or getting it wrong, the perfectionism getting in the way. And so if there's something that we can turn to that helps reduce that, then we're all more likely to uh, do more things, take more chances, and then because of that, um, grow and, and, and do more that makes us feel good. Almost all of us have ways that feeling anxious, worrying um, keeps us from trying things and staying back, you know, in the same place. So going back to that narrative, I was saying that story, we kind of stay within a certain space that feels comfortable for us and tell ourselves a story. I'm the kind of person that does this and I'm not the kind of person that does these other things that feel risky. But it's not that we're not that kind of person. We maybe haven't done it yet and we don't know if we can do it yet. Uh, but it just feels safer and more comfortable to stay here and tell ourselves, oh, I, I don't even know, I can't do that. I've never done that, so it must mean I can't do it. But if we had something we can turn to, I think that would be helpful. And I think, you know, sometimes it's funny to think that eternal life can give people that comfort, which it can, thinking that there is um, a God and I'm going to go to heaven can make people feel very comforted. But actually, as I'm just saying, and now I could see it the other way too, that realizing life is finite can give you some of that same comfort. So knowing that uh, we are going to die and you only have so long to live uh, can also be comforting when it makes us realize, okay, well, let me go for it. One is I won't have forever to try. We do have this false sense that we wouldn't acknowledge, but unconsciously that we're going to live forever. Or we have forever to do whatever we want to do as we avoid thinking about our own death, but also knowing that you will not always be here and there's an impermanence to it. It can create anxiety, a death anxiety, but also can give the sense of comfort that, well, it'll, it'll be gone anyway. You know, the things I'm going to worry about will end up just being nothing in the universe in the sense of, okay, it's just one thing that happened in one moment. The way our feelings function and really the way they have to function is to make us feel 
in that moment that whatever it is we're feeling is so important, the most important thing, which is why when we have anxiety, even if logically you can know that you're not in danger, let's say if you have a fear of flying, it's just impossible or very hard, I should say, to override that feeling because the sense of panic and fear is so real, it feels so real that we can't overcome it. So it, it can be a way that we can challenge our own feelings to recognize that it doesn't take them away, but sometimes it can make it a little easier to deal with that powerful feeling that when it feels like, okay, if I make a fool of myself in front of these people or say the wrong thing, it feels almost like death. Well, you're going to die anyway, but it also, it could also remind you that that feeling is stronger because that's how the feelings work. Just like pain, we can think of how physical pain, it makes sense for it to make us feel like it's worse than it actually is. If you were designing a type of even robot or animal or being, you wouldn't want it to be just right about how much pain would kill them. You would want it to think it's going to be killed much earlier than that to not risk um, getting killed. It reminds me of a gas gauge where it tells you you're on empty before you're actually on empty because it doesn't want to risk letting you get to that point. So it wants you to worry earlier than you actually need to worry about it. So our pain works the same way, whether it's physical or emotional. And so that knowledge can help us recognize we can try to override it a bit more that I'm feeling like this is scary, but really that's my brain, my body trying to protect me from thinking that I might take a risk that's too big to keep me safe, but actually I'm probably going to be okay. So I think feelings are great and we always want to listen to them to try to understand them, but not just let them be dictators that if I feel something, I act on it purely, but that I can understand where it might be coming from and where it might actually even be misleading me if I don't take a closer look at it. Um, would want to continue on this, and I'm sure I will, but reach the end of the show. Big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Zan Zandegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.